John Miller, and welcome back to yet another Friday edition of Everybody Trades. Hey, we should keep this trend going. What do you all think? I've been looking for a spot to regularly, regularly release this thing for, gosh, almost a year now. So, I don't know. Friday's starting to feel pretty good to me. We'll see how it goes for a while. Anyway, as I was watching, actually catching up on what happened to the State of the Union this week, something rather interesting struck me, and that is the seeming, while Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and President Trump, at first glance you would think, well, these people couldn't be more opposite, could they? But you know what? It strikes me that at least in a couple ways, they're a lot more similar than you might think. First of all, one thing's for certain, both these people you notice on the internet People who hate Donald Trump will take screenshots of him looking about as stupid as he possibly can and then placing some sort of meme-like letters on the picture and again to make him look as dumb, insane as they possibly can. Well, I've noticed that people who don't like AOC, Miss Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, they do almost literally the same thing. They take screenshots of her where she's looking as crazy as possible, bug-eyed, stupid, all of the above. In order to discredit her, they take the most goofy pictures on the internet they can possibly find, screenshots of them talking, and then, again, some memes about her basically being an idiot. Well, there was an interesting viral video that came out this morning, in fact. You can find it at James Corden's Twitter feed, if you're so interested, but it was about five minutes of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, in my opinion, doing a pretty decent job of, as the old phrase went in journalism school, of speaking truth to power. Now, her main point was about campaign finance, but she was also pointing out that members of Congress are much more constrained in power, at least compared to the president. I think she made some decent points here, and even if you disagree with some of the things she said, and I certainly could quibble with them, I don't know how you could look at that woman and say, boy, she is such an idiot. Boy, she just doesn't have two brain cells to rub together, does she? And i got to be honest, I think you can say the same thing with Donald Trump. How can you say that a man who has accumulated as much wealth as he has in his life, yeah, yeah, I know his dad gave him a million dollars, but... How many of you, if you were given a million dollars, could then become a billionaire? Again, I'm not saying you should love Donald Trump. The point is, the guy accomplished some some stuff. He's accomplished a lot of things. And again, like him or not, he's essentially Kim Kardashian in a way. You don't have to like Kim Kardashian or respect what she did or think that she's intelligent or agree with her outlook on life. But at a certain point, you do have to respect the fact that She's made millions and millions and millions of dollars figuring out something that nobody before her had really figured out before. Now, long story short, what I'm really trying to say is I think both sides, and by both sides I mean opponents of Trump and opponents of AOC, they would both be well-served to fight the ideas of those people and not try to make them out to be complete ignoramuses or people with low IQs because that's frankly that's not accurate I don't think you can call either one of these people low IQ so here's what I'm going to do since Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has been pushing 
really hard for the Green New Deal, and we've just kind of gotten the dirty details of that particular proposal just this week. Well, I'm going to focus on these ideas and why I think they're bad for humanity. But the second thing that Trump and AOC clearly have in common, at least in a general political sense, is that the mainstream of both their party of both of their parties doesn't want them to have more power. But at the same time, they know they can't completely go against them. For instance, in the last couple of days, Nancy Pelosi announced that AOC would not be on the select committee, this newly formed climate change-based select committee. And AOC would not be on it, despite her huge presence and her huge political capital that she is trying to spend all based on the Green New Deal. Now, let me tell you something. That is a huge slap in the face to AOC. And Pelosi was basically saying, hey, we love the enthusiasm of these young freshman congresspeople, but you know, by golly, uh, we gotta gotta have realism. That was essentially what she said. Well, you see, the thing is, the Democrats, the progressive movement, has been successful in the 20th century and moving into the 21st century, in my humble opinion, because it was never, like Trump stated in the State of the Union, he said, America will never be a socialist country. And that seemed to resonate with a lot of people. And here's, I think, the reason. If, if a candidate like AOC, like Nancy Pelosi, if they came out and said, I am for socialism, they would lose. But what the Democrats have done a great job of over the last hundred years or so is to slowly but surely make ever so slight moves toward the progressive end, but it's a never-ending slow churn. And to that, I, I don't see how anybody could say, that, they, that the progressive movement has not continued to progress and succeed in that way. But you see, Pelosi wants to keep that slow burn going. She wants us to all be the lobster that is being slowly boiled in the pot. Okay, But AOC wants to make the pot boiling and immediately throw the lobster in so it's scalded. But when you get scalded, you notice. When the hot tub is slowly warming up, you don't tend to notice. But when you get into a scalding pot of water, a scalding hot tub of water, you're sure as hell going to notice. And that's what Nancy Pelosi, in my opinion, is worried about. She thinks AOC, with this Green New Deal, is giving up the game. You see, she's proposing that we end all air travel in 10 years. Now, you may be a progressive-minded person. You may be a Democrat voter. But are you planning on never traveling via air ever again for the rest of your life? Because if you're really all in on this, if you're really a true believer in this, you need to not wait 10 years, in my opinion. You need to stop right. You need to stop flying right now. That big vacation you were going to take to the Bahamas, sorry, for the good of the planet, you need to stop right now. And my point in pointing all this out is, I don't think most people in the progressive movement are thinking that a lack of progress, a regression, a total regression in technology and human existence is, in fact, the solution. You see, it seems to me that the progressive movement, at least when it comes to things like the New Deal, the Green New Deal, 
and dealing with what is called climate change, it's always a regression. It's always about, hey, these bigger cars, let's make them smaller. Or let's just get rid of air travel, period. Yes, throughout history, we've celebrated the Wright brothers as two of the greatest innovators in not only American history, but human history. But now we've decided, oh wait, actually this incredible progress that human beings have made is a bad thing and we need to eliminate it forever. Well, here's one of the problems with that. While the Green New Deal may say that we're going to eliminate air travel in 10 years, the reality is is they're only talking about America. This is world government. They don't have world government. If people in China are still flying all over the place, then what's the difference? And of course, in reality, we're not going to have no flight. You can predict this as easily as anything, as the sun coming up tomorrow. There will be a rationing of flying. You see, the rich, important people like Al Gore and President Trump, who quote-unquote need to fly around, they're still going to fly. Because it's really important because they're doing things for us, you see. We're the plebes. We're the small people who can't take care of themselves. So therefore, they're the important people and they're going to make a calculation that this is an acceptable level of carbon emissions. Keep that phrase in mind in the back of your head. An acceptable level. It's not that they really want, even though they say they want to get down to no emissions via no air travel, I'm telling you the reality is they will be the only ones who travel via air. The ones who are quote-unquote in charge of carbon emissions will magically decide that they, that whatever they're emitting is an acceptable level. See, it's the millions and millions of the rest of us, the billions of the rest of us. If we're all doing it, that's unacceptable. But you see, they're the special people and they must continue to fly. If these, if this type of thing is ever tried in America in terms of banning flight, 100%, it won't be banned, it will be rationed. And among the other more radical proposals of the New Deal is the idea that we're going to retrofit every building in America in order for it to emit less or in order to, be, to again, get to the acceptable level of carbon emissions. Well, yesterday on NPR's Morning Edition, Steve Inskeep, Inskeep was talking to AOC about the Green New Deal, and his first question was basically about, hey, how are we going to pay for all this stuff? He says, quote, one reason people who are politically conservative are skeptical of efforts to combat climate change is that it sounds to them like it requires massive government inter- intervention, which they just don't like. And he says, are you prepared to put that on the table? Yes, that they are right, that this requires massive government intervention. Well, here is how AOC responded to that question. It does. Yeah, I have no problem saying that. Why? Because we have tried their approach for 40 years. For 40 years, we tried to let the private sector take care of it. They said, we got this. We can do this. The the forces of the market are going to force us to innovate, except for the fact 
that there's a little thing in economics called externalities. And what that means is that a corporation can dump pollution in the river and they don't have to pay for it. And taxpayers have to pay for cleaning up our air, cleaning up our water and saving the planet. And so we've already been paying the costs, except we have not been getting any of the benefits. So let's first of all, there's a lot to unpack there, as the popular phrase goes these days in the news. But let's start one at a time, shall we? Well, first of all, she makes the claim that the private sector has been trying to fix it all for the last 40 years. Well, before there was the Green New Deal, there was this thing called the New Deal. Just just the New Deal. Before it was green, it was just new. It was old. It was the damn green. It was the New Deal. The old New Deal. And during that period... During the period of the New Deal, see, what public schools will tell you is, by golly, the New Deal got us out of the Great Depression. Except, what they don't tell you is, number one, how they did it. They just say, it happened. We spent a bunch of money, and we stopped lower it. We stopped the falling of prices, and that's what did it. Congratulations to the government. How interesting that the public school system would say that the government rescued people from the Great Depression without ever bothering to tell you how they helped get us into it. But it's also funny to hear AOC talk about the market and how there are negative externalities in the market, but then she'll go around and say at the same time she talks about corporations essentially dumping toxic waste into public rivers. Well, why is there never any talk of the negative externalities of public property? of government-controlled, monopolized property. If the government has a monopoly, has a monopoly of control on the rivers, for instance, on our waterways, then why aren't they keeping them clean? Why are they so horrible at keeping our rivers and our oceans clean? See, it's my argument that, like my parents' pond, for instance, in, in southern Boone County, that thing... Believe me, you'd much rather take your chances if you had to take a glass of water out of totally untreated. You'd much rather have it out of my parents' publicly owned pond than the Missouri River. And that's because we don't allow people, for obvious reasons, to dump any types of toxic waste or any type of waste or human waste, whatever it might be, onto our property. Why would we? It's our property. You're going to ruin it. But hey, if it's not mine, eh, the heck with it. You notice there's a lot of people in this area who act that way with littering. Notice there's you see litter all across our highways. Again, not my property. Eh, I'll just throw it out there. What I'm trying to point out to Miss Ocasio-Cortez is that actually making the more of the planet, more of the country, more of your state, making more public property is actually going to increase these things, increase pollution. Increase companies who are dumping irresponsibly. They're just going to do it more. But believe me, while I might not notice if Exxon or whoever it might be dumps a bunch of stuff into the Missouri River, I'm not going to notice that. I'll be completely honest. But if they dump it on my property, you're damn right I'm going to notice. And there's going to be a direct suit there, a direct legal recourse that I can take. But when it's public property... You see, nobody really cares. That's the problem. When it's not really yours, we pretend like we care about 
public safety, public this, public that. But no one, no matter how good of a person you are, even if you're WWE champion Daniel Bryan, the champion of the planet, even he does not care as much about the public as he does about his stuff, his family, his property. That's just the way people are. I'm sorry. It's impossible. We're animals. We're kind of selfish when you get down to it. Or self-interested, I should say. We're basically animals that can talk. So let's not be so grandiose in our self-assessment of ourselves. And speaking of grandiose notions, that brings us to my second soundbite that I cut for you all today. Again, we're here with Steve Inskeep of NPR's Morning Edition, and he says to AOC, you're talking about things that obviously would cost a lot of money, and you do not specify where the money's going to come from other than saying it'll pay for itself. Well, again, here's AOC. Yeah, I think the first thing that we need to do is is kind of break the mistaken idea that taxes pay for 100% of government expenditure. It's just not how government expenditure works. We can recoup costs, but oftentimes you look at, for example, the GOP tax cut, which I think was an irresponsible use of government expenditure, but government projects are often financed by a combination of taxes, uh, deficit spending, and other kinds of, of investments, you know, bonds. So she's actually very honest there in saying that, yes, it goes much beyond taxation in order to pay for all of government expenditure. What she leaves out there is that really it all comes down to just printing more money. And isn't that a great solution for us? It actually sort of begs the question. I mean, if we can just print, if we're, because the United States is the keeper of the money printer, the United States government, if they can just print more money and pay for whatever they want to pay for, then my obvious question would be, why do we need to pay for taxes at all? If none of this is actually real and we just need to print more money in order to get what we need, then why collect taxes, period? Why not just let everybody keep their money and then the government can buy what it needs with its own printed dollar bills? What could possibly be the problem with that? Well, clearly, if you take that to its logical extension, you're now starting to go, hopefully, if you have at least a somewhat discerning brain on that shoulder of your so shoulders of yours you should be thinking wait a minute if nothing's real then how is any of this going to actually work aha see that's a good thought and again steve inskeep of npr who to me is sort of part of the political establishment in his own way along with nancy pelosi so he's not just going along with this and Unlike most politicians that would come on his show, he's actually pushing back against the notion of deficits and deficit spending to the point where he says, okay, AOC, I get that. But deficit spending is borrowing money. It has to be paid back eventually somehow, like, for example, through taxes. Well, and here's her response to that particular notion. Yeah, and I think that is always the crux of it. So when we decide to go into the realm of deficit spending, we have to do so responsibly. We ask, is this an investment or is this actually going to pay for itself? So you're saying borrow the money, make the investment, the economy will grow, we'll pay off the debt. Absolutely, because we're creating jobs. Aha. So we're creating jobs. That's the key, right? Well, again, jobs are good. Hey, we all like having a job, right? If you're looking for a job and you get a job, 
that's paying you regularly, you're happy. You don't have any complaints. But at the end of the day, the person who's employing you does care what kind of job you're doing. And by what kind, it's not even necessarily about how good of a job you're doing. You may well be doing exactly what your employer told you to do. But that doesn't mean that you're creating wealth. That doesn't mean that you're creating wealth for your employer. That doesn't mean that the employer isn't losing a ton of money or doing something that really isn't productive for himself, herself, or indeed the community in general. See, simply creating jobs doesn't do it. See, you get back to the old John Maynard Keynes broken window fallacy. See, his thought was, while yes, the person who has the broken window, they're not very happy about it, as long as the person fixing the window then spends the money on something else, then the society is better off as a whole. Well, I would argue that society would be even better off had his window never broken. Now, indeed, the window repairman would be out of a job if no windows ever broke. But the part you're forgetting is, is the window repairman can do other things. He isn't beholden to the same job for his entire life. You see, people are dynamic and they are very much capable of change, even if they don't like it. And again, I'm really trying to get to the idea of economic calculation. See, nobody, whether you're in the private sector or you're in the public sector, if you're going to start a new business, if you're going to build a new road, if you're going to build a new bridge, if you're going to build a new school, a new grocery store, whatever it might be, how could you possibly know ahead of time what the result of that is going to be? Well, the, result, the reality is, is none of us know the results of the future because that's, that's exactly what it is. It's the future. I have yet to meet one human being on this planet who is capable of predicting with 100% accuracy the things that are going to happen in the future. So with that reality in mind, we must still plan. We must still think ahead. But what we're doing is we're sort of grasping around in the dark. We're feeling our way through the hallway, and hopefully we're not going to stub our toe. But occasionally we are going to stub our toe. And that's when it's actually good that we have individual power instead of this collective, huge, gigantic, we're going to do whatever we want to do in spite of all of your subjective personal values government. Because then at least the mistake is contained to the individual or to the group that agreed to take said risk. But when the government is deciding, as AOC puts it, to make investments on our behalf, there is no real risk calculation that can be made. Because in fact, again, in AOC's world, she isn't taking the risk. She may be taking it electorally, but her life isn't going to change that much if she's elected out of office in any serious way. Unlike people who there are certainly huge policies that have done throughout, gone on throughout history that have made a direct impact on people's lives. And let's not, let's not stick with theory here. Let's go with actual reality. Let's go with real history. And in fact, since we're talking about the Green New Deal, let's take a look at the old New Deal for a minute. Now, for all intents and purposes, the Great Depression began with the stock market crash of 1929. And with that stock market crash, there was a falling of prices in general, not just the stock market, 
but many other prices began falling as well. And so, when FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, was elected to the presidency in late 1932, he got started very quickly with him and his political proponents. They got started very quickly in moving toward what they felt, at least in public, this is what they felt would get the economy starting again. And a big part of that was to stop prices from falling. So wait, let's take the basic Econ 101 supply and demand theory. How do we stop, how do you get prices to stop falling? Well, one way you do it, and the easiest way, at least in the opinions of the FDR administration, cut supply. See, of course, all things being equal, if supply is less than it otherwise would have been, then again, all things being equal in that comparison, you're going to have higher prices. So what did the FDR administration do in order to constrain supply? Well, they took John Maynard Keynes and his broken window fallacy to the ultimate extreme. You see, as part of the Agricultural Adjustment Act of 1933, the federal government carried out what they called emergency livestock reductions. Now, I've just given you two of the biggest euphemisms of all time right there. Agricultural Adjustment Act, and then which they then deemed emergency livestock, quote, reductions. Well, what did these reductions look like in reality? Well, in Nebraska alone, the government bought about a half million cattle and another close to half million pigs for a total nationwide of about six million hogs were purchased from farmers. And in the South, one million farmers were paid to plow under ten and a half million acres of cotton. So again, the broken window fallacy was alive and well in 1933. You see, in order to get ourselves out of poverty, we need to destroy our crops. And yes, we need to destroy our cattles and pigs as well. And when I say destroy, I mean quite literally destroy. These animals were simply round up by the government and killed. That is absolutely true. Now, for most of these farmers, this was an incredibly bitter pill to swallow. But the reality was for them, facing bankruptcy and seeing the government come down with a big sack of cash for you to essentially stop working, to kill your crops, to kill your livestock, it was kind of an offer that they couldn't refuse, quite honestly. It was, what, well, it was that or starvation was the way that they looked at it. Because quite frankly, the thing that is almost never talked about is how the Great Depression started. See, they tell you, oh, the stock market crashed. They don't tell you about how the stock market rised for the entire roaring 20s like a gigantic hot air balloon that could no longer take the air pressure inside of it. Eventually, it popped. But what they don't mention out, that they don't mention is the Federal Reserve opened its doors in 1914 and began its control of the money supply. That's not a coincidence. That is when gold started to, the gold standard started, started to be loosened. It's not a coincidence. 
But moreover, getting back to the idea that destruction is going to lead to wealth via basically the idea of the broken window fallacy. All right, here's the, here's the idea. We're going to destroy a bunch of cotton and cattle and pigs in order for the farmers, hey, they'll have higher prices that they can sell. Oh, wow, isn't that magical? But again, like most, pro- like most government programs, it only looks at one side of the supposed problem, and often the solution is much worse than the problem. Because if you think about it, people were going hungry during the Depression. Couldn't some of them obviously used some pork and some beef, possibly some cotton to put on their bodies? But no, we only look at it from the perspective of the producers in this case, the producers of that. Why are we not looking at it from the case of the consumer as well? See, from the consumer's perspective, lower prices are always better. While obviously from the producer's side, yeah, you want higher prices. In other words, if I'm trying to buy a house from you, you're trying to get the highest price from me as you can, whereas I'm trying to get the lowest. It's a real basic fundamental relationship we can all understand, isn't it? So why is it that when we make these kinds of emergency livestock reductions, he said euphemistically, why is it that we can only look at one side of the equation? And why can we not see that a bunch of people being fed cheap food, and actually that would actually alleviate not only their hunger and their poverty to some extent, it would make them more productive. And whatever it is they did as well. You see, the reality is, if you think this is Cookville, this is, well, that was the 1930s, the government, the federal government would never do anything like this ever again. And this was only for emergency times. Well, the, the honest truth is, is actually, for years and years, every single year, the federal government pays people to not farm. It's the same idea. It's the same idea of the nanny state that needs to keep prices of beef, of cotton, of whatever it might be, whatever your crop is, of sugar, of corn, whatever the price, whatever the crop is that they want to keep high, to this day they mess around in the market with that stuff. To this day they're making products, crops, unnecessarily scarce. They're creating less of it in order to prop up the price. Why is that good for you and I who aren't farmers? Why is that good for those of us who eat? the 99% of us who actually don't grow our own food. Why is that good for us? And again, I'm not trying to pick on the farmers, but why should we pay you to not grow anything? I'm very grateful to the people who actually make my food. But I'm not grateful to people who are paid to sit at home and not grow anything. That doesn't actually make any sense in real life. And finally, if it's really true that what Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says is that many government investments will actually yield and bear fruit for society and for government and for everybody in it, then why not build the wall then? (laughs) See, and I point out the wall not because I'm the world's biggest advocate of the wall per se, but if the wall costs $5 billion, then in AOC's own words, we should get $30 billion in value out of it. Now, what she'll tell you, and she said in that soundbite, we have to basically figure out if this expenditure is going to be an investment that yields something in the future. But again, 
how do we know that? We can't possibly know that. And you're definitely, it's almost, it's not impossible, but it's really, really unlikely that any person is going to start a venture and have it work out for them and be profitable and successful when they have no skin in the game, when they're not actually using, not only they're not using their own money, they have no way of calculating profit and loss. Imagine if you were running a business, if you were a manager of the business, and there was no way for you to calculate whether the money coming in or out was enough to cover your expenses. You have no idea. And not only do you have no idea of just basic profit and loss, you have no idea until sometimes years or decades down the road the true costs and expenses that are always going to balloon out of control and beyond any projections of what anybody in D.C. originally told you. This happens over and over again. Give me one example where it didn't happen. I'll give you some ones where it did. How about Social Security? How about Medicaid? How about Medicare? How about the Patriot Act? How about the TSA? Have any of those ever come in under budget? Has any massive government program ever come under budget? And the irony is, while AOC went viral with her speaking truth to power of the presidency, does anybody think that in the future, if this new Green Deal is adopted, that the president is going to have less power than he does today? I don't think so. Because the obvious trend since the 20th century and since, frankly, the founding of this country is that the president and indeed the Congress gets more and more and more power with each passing year. And sometimes, and often, the Congress actually punts on its powers, as you can tell by the fact that we haven't actually officially declared war since World War II. There's a little thing in the Constitution that says that Congress has to do that, and yet they don't. So, I hope that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, in this particular case, is sincere about pulling back the president's power, because I would love to see Congress reassert its power to declare war. Because if that happened, I guarantee you, if all these people had to put a vote with their name to authorize these things, there'd be a lot less of it. And that would be nothing but good for everybody in the world, for America, for our deficit, for the actual people who are in uniform. They'll be more safe. They'll have more worthy things of their time to do, like actually defend this country. How about that? Instead of going over to Venezuela for interests. Is that why we're in Venezuela? Because it's certainly not because their military is on the verge of attacking America. That I think we can all agree with. So if it's not that, can we at least make our Congress people vote on entering Venezuela? All right. Anyway, I've gone a little long here today, but there was a lot to cover with the Green New Deal, and I'm just going to leave you with one last thought, and you can mull that over for yourself. You see, the Green New Deal is neither new nor a deal. Discuss. All right, everybody. Thanks for joining me again on Everybody Trades. I'm John Miller. See you next week. Thank you.